Welcome back to the War Room at American Bridge podcast. I'm David Brock, co-founder of American Bridge 21st Century. Today, we're discussing what it's like working in a functioning White House with former Vice President Joe Biden. With me today is former White House Deputy Chief of Staff in the Obama-Biden administration, Jim Messina. Jim, welcome to the program. My pleasure, David. Thank you for having me. So, Jim, um, you're the expert on all things Obama, and President Obama is back on the trail in Philadelphia today. I was just watching him. Um, what do you think the impact of that is um, uh, in these last few days of the, the election? I think it's really significant, right? And I think it's significant for two different reasons. One, I think it's significant because Barack Obama is able to tell a very personal story about Joe Biden in a way that no one else can. Um, about eight years of his decision making of what they kind of learned together. And I think on some of his initial you know, podcast appearances, he really kind of delved into it. Um, the second thing is I think both Obamas, and I always make sure I caveat it with both Obamas, because as I like to tease him, she's the most popular political figure in America by 10 points. Uh, and, you know, which I'm not sure he loves when I say, but uh, it's true. Um, and so both of them are able to speak to the base uh, in a way that is incredibly important. And I think he really kind of pieced through it saying, look, you know, let's not let the perfection be the enemy of the good here. Let's make sure we understand this is a singularly important election to get rid of Donald Trump. Um, and we all should care no matter how we feel about the primaries or, you know, issues or progressive politics or whatever. And so I think he can he can speak again to the swing voters in a very personal way and the base in a way that, you know, he is the most beloved political figure of his time. Yeah, right. And so do you think we'll see a little bit more of Michelle as well in these closing days? I do. And I hope so, because she's super great at it and she's got a very you know, compelling way to do it. And, you know, and I think the campaign's using her carefully, uh, you know, given her time and, and their time. But yeah, I think you're going to see both of them. That'll be great. So um, before we get into some of the nitty gritty, um, just generally give us an idea of what are the issues that are driving the electorate right now? Well, it's really interesting. You know, in my experience, and as you know, David, when I ran President Obama's campaign, I went back and studied the last hundred years of American politics. And then I went and interviewed every kind of smart tech sort of new media executive from Steve Jobs, Derek Schmidt, to Steven Spielberg. Um, and when you look at this, what you realize is, you know, that Usually, American presidential elections are a future, a referendum on the future of the economy and economic futures. It's our mutual friend, James Carville's, it's economy stupid, right? And when I was doing Obama, Bill Clinton would wake me up once a month at two o'clock in the morning and say in his beautiful voice, Jim, all elections are always about the economy. And so that's always been my assumption. That's been true with both Obama elections. But what has been interesting, and as a corollary, there's this theory in American presidential politics that you can survive one kind of major problem, like economic or some other. President Trump is really trying to get reelected with three headwinds. He has an economic recession, and of the nine presidents in the past 100 years, eight of them have lost during an economic recession. Only in 1924 did the incumbent win, and not even you and I are that fucking old. 
Um, so we don't remember that. Uh, the second headwind is the worst social unrest in 50 years. And the third headwind is our first pandemic in 100 years. And I think we can stipulate that President Trump has handled all three of them terribly. And so instead of this being a, a choice uh, between two candidates, it's really a referendum on the incumbent. And the issue is Donald Trump. And the issue is his failure. And, you know, we used to say in the Obama reelect, look, if it's a referendum on the incumbent, historically you lose. If it's a choice, historically you win. And so we were always going to make the Romney race a choice. And we did and we won. Um, the problem right now is everything Donald Trump says is about himself. He can't help it. You and I have talked about this privately over several cocktails. Like, it's just always about him. And, and that's historically, as I like to say in my mother's native language, really fucking stupid. Because, like, you know, it's, as you and I know, it's supposed to be about the voters. Voters look at this stuff and say, hey, this is about, you know, us, not the politicians. And Barack Obama used to say to us all the time, I'm just a vessel. This is about people. And it's true. And Donald Trump's, this election is about Trump. Democrats want to make it about Trump and COVID. Donald Trump wants to make it about Trump and the economy. But it's still both sides want to make it about Trump. And that's why I think he's in such trouble. Yeah, right. So, but on the economy, we, we are in this economic recession. And yet, depending on the poll you look at, you know, uh, it, it's still a strength for Trump. Um, some poll I saw today or yesterday had Biden kind of drawing even on the question, but still it's, it's Trump's strong suit. And I think that's frustrating um, because we are in this recession. And I wonder why you think that is. I mean, my theory is in 16, we did not go after this phony idea that he's a self-made businessman. And in the focus groups that, you know, you and I look at currently, that's still this perception, you know, particularly among the people who are more inclined to support him. So, so why, why does he still have that, that strength? You know, it's a great question. And as you, as you just said, you and I see lots of focus groups with these voters that you and I are obsessed with, these Trump-Obama voters. Um, Six million Americans voted for both Donald Trump and Barack Obama. And in the three Midwestern states, the old blue wall that will decide this election, uh, it was a little bit over a million people. And that's incredibly significant because in those three states of Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, Trump won by a total of 77,744 votes, not that I'm counting. Um, and when you ask those people um, why, they say because we thought he'd be good on the economy. They thought he'd be better on the economy because he was a successful business guy. And to this day, he gets more of a kind of benefit of the doubt from these voters because voters are always smarter than we give them credit for. And they kind of say, well, the economy sucks, but, you know, some of it's COVID and, you know, and, and they've really kind of thought about who's going to be better for the economy. But I think it's incredibly significant, to your point, David, that we're now tied on that issue because that's the only issue holding Donald Trump up. And if you look at health care, Biden leads by double digits. If you look at racial relations, Biden leads by double digits. And so the fact that we got tied, I remember in 2008, which seems like approximately 57 years ago, 
But we were obsessed in the general election with making sure we didn't lose it on taxes. And there was this whole thing about Democrats lose presidential elections because they're tax and spend liberals. And, you know, the, the Bush and the Reagan mantle always scared us. And I remember like in October, Obama pulled even with McCain on taxes. And I remember thinking to myself, we are going to win this election because this is a change election. And that's kind of what I think now, because if there's no Trump advantage on the economy, there's no Trump advantage on anything. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. So let's talk about these elusive undecideds, um, you know, whether it's 5% or I saw somewhere it's 3% in Pennsylvania, uh, truly undecided. Some of them, I guess, may not vote. Um, I know you've studied these undecideds and the swing voters a lot. Um, what are they looking for at this stage? I mean, somebody who's actually really undecided, what are they looking for, do you think? It's a great question. First of all, let's talk about who they are and what they are, right? Because to your point, um, I really have spent last decade of my life looking at these voters and you and I and American Bridge have done some amazing research on these voters and it's super interesting. They have an average of two and a half jobs. They think about politics four minutes a week. They have an average of commute time because they live, you know, some of them live in the suburbs and exurbs of over an hour. And, and, you know, they have lives like they have two and a half jobs. They think about politics very small amount of time, you know, over almost two thirds of them have kids. Um, over 57, 58% of them are women. And so, you know, people call them low information voters, although I think that's, that's a bullshit term because it makes them seem like they aren't smart and they are. They just have day jobs, right? And they, and they usually look at these issues with a very understandable focus on their family and say, who's in it for us? Who's going to make my kids' lives better? Who's going to make my life better? And they want to know traditionally that you're okay in the economy and that you have a vision uh, back to the Bill Clinton thing. You have to have an economic vision of the future. Um, and two, that your heart's in the right place that, you know, in political speak, we call that shares our values. But how the way swing voters think about it is, are they on our side? Are they going to fight for us? Right. And and, you know, they're trying to they're trying to figure that out because I have a private theory that they've already decided to fire Trump. They've decided they don't like him because they think he's, you know, he's driven them crazy with his tweets and his antics. And especially if you have kids, you're sick of trying to explain to your kids what this guy as the president said. And the question has been, could Biden get over that hurdle? And, you know, the first debate allowed, you know, got him over that hurdle in Trump's behavior. And now, to your point, now we're just trying to give these swing voters enough sort of, you know, theory of the case about what Biden's going to do and remind them what Trump has not done. Uh, and, and in that, it's important how you do it. And, you know, in the old days, I used to love 30 second attack ads because they worked. But, you know, part of what you and I have found in our research is that people want to hear from people that are like them. They don't want to hear from a doom and gloom guy on TV saying, Jim Messina is a jerk and here's why you shouldn't vote for Jim Messina. They instead want a local person who looks like them from their community to say, hey, you know, here's the way I think about this and here's my story. And that is really persuasive. And that has been an interesting thing because 
you know, independent testing, not related to any of the campaigns or the super PACs or anything else, the best testing ads are normal humans talking about politics. And that really is a change. And I think it's a super good change. Yeah, that's really interesting. And they're not, they're not overtly bashing uh, Trump in these ads. Yeah. Yep. Totally right. Yeah. So um, switch gears for a minute. Um, last week, there was this New York Times op-ed called Biden Not Out of the Woods that gave people a little heartburn, I think. Um, and it had to do with Democrats lagging on uh, the voter reg front. Um, is that a concern? What does that mean? Um, and uh, is, that, is, that, is that a concern at this point? Um, I think it is a concern. It's a concern that I share, but I'm not too worried about. So let me just make the case, and so people know, um, in the major states that really matter, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Florida, Michigan, uh, and Wisconsin, the Republicans have registered more voters in the past six months than the Democrats and have clawed their way closer in the voter registration thing. And that combined with the kind of, you know, uh, the sort of inability to trust the polls has Democrats doing what we do best, which is bedwetting and panicking, right? And I think that's very, given what happened in 2016, I refuse to be teased for being a bedwetter. We all should be. Um, but if you just look at the actual numbers, and as you know, uh, David, I'm a data geek. It's like it's ridiculous how much I love data. And so that data is true and it is concerning. And President Trump's campaign uh, deserves to be commended for using its resources to change those numbers. And they largely did it before the COVID with his rallies. And they kind of took a playbook from the Obama campaign. And everyone who got into the rally had to show they were registered and they had to register and they had to call their friends, blah, blah, blah. But if you're just looking at numbers and data again, what you that is a definable number and it's not a very big number. And remember that 40% of the people who register won't vote. We know this from 30 years of research. So what you care more about is some of these demographic switches that you and I track, that women voters have moved in historic numbers. And the poll you were referencing earlier that came out yesterday was the New York Times poll. And they had the gender gap at, I think, 21 points. David, that's not a gender gap. That's a gender canyon. And you'd way rather have a point of women vote than you would a point of voter reg, because it's just the sheer number is much bigger. You and I and our colleague Bradley Baychock and Jennifer Granholm and James Carville have been focused on these rural voters and these voters who switch between Obama and Trump. You know, Donald or Joe Biden is doing four to seven points better in some of these states with these voters. You'd much rather have that number than you would this voter registration number. So, you know, I think the polls are likely underestimating President Trump a little bit just because people don't want to admit they're for him. But if you just look demographically under the hood, um, you would much rather have kind of our concerns than their concerns. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Um, of all the battleground states that we all follow obsessively, um, which is the one that would make you the most uh, nervous? Pennsylvania. And, and Pennsylvania makes me the most nervous just because the voter reg rules or the early vote rules are harder. Um, they're a traditionally state where both parties are kind of same day voters. 
Um, and, you know, the whole world was surprised by Democratic turnout in Philly in 2016, and it wasn't a good surprise. Um, and, you know, um, again, our colleague Jennifer Granholm feels good about her home state of, of Michigan, and she's undefeated there. Um, usually, you know, in the past year, I've always been a Wisconsin guy, Wisconsin, Wisconsin, Wisconsin. And um, Wisconsin continues to surprise us and looks really, really good. And the state that I go to sleep at night and worry about is Pennsylvania. Right. And is that is that partly because, um, you know, there are these there are these voter there are these non voters out there. They're like potential or prospective Trump supporters who didn't vote in 2016. And there are a lot of them in places like Pennsylvania. Um, so is that is that part of the is that part of the issue? Yeah. And so if you look at it in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and Michigan, basically take the Midwest. Right. There are more sort of potential Trump voters who didn't vote in 2016. Then there are potential Democrats who are minorities and young people. But the reason why Democrats are moving in some of these states that people are surprised in, especially in the southwest and east, is in states like North Carolina, Florida, and Texas, and Arizona, there are way more kind of potential Democratic voters than potential Trump voters. And so that is why, you know, my my brother and colleague, David Pluff, and I used to debate Wisconsin over Arizona, and he'd say over and over and over, Jim, there's more of our voters in, Was- or in, Pen- uh, in Arizona. Arizona's a better bet than Wisconsin. And I'd say, we've carried Wisconsin six out of the last seven elections. That's a better bet. And the, and the answer is, turns out both were right, that if you just look at demographically, the Midwest is getting older and whiter, which is not great for Democrats. And there are more kind of, of these potential Trump voters in the Midwest. And then for the Democrats, these other kind of emerging states, Georgia, North Carolina, Texas, Arizona, um, are getting younger and less white, which are great for the Democrats. Right. Absolutely. So... Um what uh how would you kind of sum up uh biden's closing argument here it seems to be working uh how would you how would you characterize it joe biden is saying i'm not donald trump and i can bring the country together like that's you know the two things i don't know if you saw this ad they debuted last night during the world series featuring the actor samuel Eat on voice but i don't know who did that ad but they deserve a bonus And it kind of perfectly encapsulated Joe Biden's candidacy because it was literally like, you know, kind of went back to Obama era language. There's no red America. There's no blue America. There's the United States. And we all got to get along. Uh, And that kind of calling of the better spirits of American politics is things that winning presidential candidates from Ronald Reagan to Barack Obama have historically done. And and, you know, uh, I think there's always been a little bedwetting on the on the Democratic side that Biden didn't have a message, which I don't think was fair. He had a very clear message um, uh, of Donald Trump sucks and I'm not Donald Trump. And they've done a very good job closing with some hopefulness that is important both for his base and for these swing voters to remind them who we are. Right. Absolutely. And what about is, does Trump have a closing argument? Um, the law and order gambit didn't work, according to the polls. Um, so what's what's left? All he can do is burn Biden down, right? 
And the problem is, you know, it goes to this number that I track every day, which is people who don't like both candidates. Last time, Donald Trump surged at the end because of those people. And he won those voters by 12 points. In an election, he lost by three nationally. That's a big margin. And right now, those same people who don't like either one of them favor Biden by almost 20 points, David. And so eventually Trump has to give them something to hold on to, which is why I predict this week in the debate, um, you know, people forget the final debate in 2016. Trump did a little bit better with being less of a dick uh, and trying to give these, especially these swing women voters, something to hold on to. And if he if he's unwilling to kind of do it day to day, he's got to do it during this debate. Uh, past couple of days is, um, and you've uh, you know obviously you've run uh, a very successful presidential campaign. Um, that Biden has, I believe, a, a three three times as much cash on hand as Trump, and Trump has burned through a bunch of money, um, which leads me to think or to at least suspect that there are some grifters on that campaign. Um, what, what's going on with the, with the money issue? So, you know, this is what a dork I am, David. Like even before this, I used to pull the FEC reports for Trump and build his budget because I just wanted to see, you know, like how are they spending their money? And I was saying this a year ago to you, like it was insane. They were spending historic amounts on lawyers for all their shady people they fired. Um, or who were being investigated. Then they were spending like ungodly money on these rallies slash Donald Trump therapy sessions, which, you know, at the time you and I kind of argued over and we both agreed if they registered voters, maybe it wasn't a bad thing. And they clearly were doing some of that. But then you look at the consulting fees and, you know, to the grifter points, like, you know, how do you spend a billion dollars before anyone had voted? You know, I was incredibly privileged to run the first billion dollar campaign in, in world political history. And like we used to throw around dimes like they were manhole covers because even then we couldn't afford to compete in states like Arizona. Like we just couldn't afford it. And so we used to just be incredibly frugal. And, you know, their campaign manager had a limo. I didn't allow our people to 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 get receipts for cabs. Right. He had a car and driver. Like, you know, I remember Pete Rouse, who's the president's senior advisor, was flying to Chicago to do an event for us. And he called me and goes, they're telling me you won't even pay for my subway fare. And I said, nope, you got we're not. And he's like, you're cheap. And, you know, that's that's the way traditionally you and I were raised in politics. That's what you did. And these guys had drivers. They had, you know, huge retainers and basically, you know, uh, the Republican operative Karl Rove said this publicly, you know, none of those people were people who traditionally were kind of national class political consultants. And this was their one moment to be in the spotlight and they were going to go make money off of it. And, you know, they did. Right. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, so let's switch to the Senate, um, you know, which is also super important here if we're going to uh, be able to govern. Um, what do you think the prospects are at the moment that we take the Senate back? Yeah, so I worked in the Senate for almost 20 years. Um, I care very deeply about it. All my early campaign manager jobs were Senate races and in tough states like Montana and North Dakota and Alaska. And, um, and so, you know, I think in many ways, Senate races are more 
at least more fun, if not more important, uh, than presidential races. Um, and today, I think we win a very slim majority. And so if you just kind of look at the seats, you know, I think it's clear we're going to win Colorado, home of the world champion Denver Broncos. Um, it's clear we're going to win Arizona. Uh, I think we get Maine. Um, today, I think we give back Alabama. Um, please don't hate me for saying that. Uh, and then we need one more to tie and have Kamala break it. And if you look at, you know, what you realize in Senate elections is you just need a bunch of shots on goal, as we say. And, you know, usually in presidential years, you have wave years, you win some Senate races you don't expect. That was true in 2006, 2008. Um, and so, you know, if you look at some of the races, David, where we're competitive right now, Democrats haven't won a United States Senate race in Kansas since 1932. And currently, we're tied. Now, do we win that race? I don't know, but Mitch McConnell just moved $10 million to it. Mitch McConnell just moved $20 million to South Carolina, where we haven't won a statewide election since 1998. Um, we're currently burying them in money in Alaska, which is not a Democratic haven. Um, you know, uh, today, in the, it looks like they're both going to go to runoffs, but there's a chance that on election day, we win one or two of the Georgia seats, um, which is just unbelievable. My home state of Montana, uh, Steve Bullock is tied and has been tied. And, you know, we have a jump ball Senate race in a state where Donald Trump's going to win by eight or 10 points. And so that kind of shows you that, you know, if on election day we lose all of those, you'd say, OK, well, they're Republican states. But if we, if we win one or two of them, suddenly you're at 51, 52, 53, and you have a real majority. Here's the thing that keeps me up at night is, and this is also a very good talking point for your listeners for their next Zoom cocktail party, um, which is 2016 was the first time in American political history where uh, the party that won the presidency in that state won every single battleground Senate race in that state. So if you win uh, Colorado presidential, you win Colorado Senate race, uh, meaning no ticket splitters, which goes to the question of how many, your very first question, which is how many ticket splitters are there, right? And how many swing voters are there? Now, I think you're going to see differences here because I think we're going to win Senate races, you know, in a couple of these states. Like, I think we could win Iowa. We could win Montana. You know, we could we could win a couple of these. But, you know, if you start to just look at the math, Kansas is a great example. Trump's going to win by, I'm making this up, but 12, 15 points. And then you need, you know, a quarter of voters to vote for both parties in those two elections. And, you know, and that's hard, right? Now, Boiling's a great candidate and, you know, da 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 You know, if you are uh, Teresa Greenfield in Iowa, you don't even need Biden to win. You just need Biden to basically tie and not kind of, you know, have this big Trump win. Uh, and so, you know, how the president does in some of these states really, really is going to matter. And if you just look at some of the polling in some of these red districts, especially the House, but true in the Senate, too, you're just seeing Trump way underperform his 2016 performance in some of these places because he's tanking with women voters in uh, in the suburbs and in the exurbs, these kind of Trump-Obama switchers. Um, and if you're a House or Senate Republican, those numbers scare the living hell out of you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, 
If Biden wins this election, why? Because he will be seen as the candidate who can bring the country back together. You know, Obama said to me in 2008, he, when he was thinking about running, he looked and realized that, you know, the, the president is usually a reaction to the previous president. 1992, you know, George Bush was seen as out of touch on the economy. We elect this young, in-touch guy who understood our feelings, Bill Clinton. He was seen as having some moral issues. He's replaced with the compassionate conservative George Bush. He was seen as out of touch and, you know, not very bright. We elect the urbane, transcendental uh, Barack Obama. Uh, Trump's argument was politics has failed you. That didn't change the world. I can fix the economy. What is the opposite of Donald Trump? The opposite of Donald Trump is Joe Biden, someone who will bring us together cares about foreign policy, cares about issues, has experience, understands how to work Washington. And so, you know, why Joe Biden won a primary that, you know, after Iowa and New Hampshire didn't like he didn't look like he was going to is because the party just decided one day, fuck it, he's the best candidate to be Trump. And it turns out they were right. Yeah, absolutely. So God forbid, I have to ask the flip side of the question, if Biden lost, why would that be? that Trump was able to hold his Midwestern coalition and that, you know, there's no chance in hell in any scenario where Trump can win the the popular vote. He's just going to get slaughtered in the popular vote for, remember last time listeners, he lost by three points. Since then, almost, I think, eight million people have died, been replaced by young people who are, you know, way more liberal, blah, blah, blah. He's going to lose the popular vote. But he could eke out a victory in his 2016 states. And that's his scenario on how he wins. Because like, you know, I'm sorry, I know he's going to go to Nevada. That's a waste of his time. You know, as is, as is New Mexico, that's even a bigger waste. He's not going to carry Minnesota. Um, he's got to replicate Iowa, or sorry, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And, and then hold Florida, North Carolina, and Arizona. It is a tall order. And, you know, my whole thing when I ran a presidential campaign, David, was I wanted as many pathways to 270 electoral votes as I could get. I wanted, you know, Florida added with Wisconsin. I wanted Florida added with Arizona. Well, if you're Trump, all you have right now is, is hold, serve, and try to figure out a way in the Midwest. Yeah, right. Exactly. So um, let me ask you, um, you've run a presidential campaign, but you've also uh, had a lot of experience in the Obama White House. You sat in the Oval Office with Joe Biden when he was vice president. Um, So tell us a little bit about, you know, that experience and how you think he'll transition from VP to candidate, hopefully to president, should he be successful on election day. There was two things I I really remarked about Biden after serving as White House Deputy Chief of Staff. And the first was whenever there was a really tough legislative issue where we didn't have the votes, we went to the vice president's office, right? And we would sit with him and say, how do we get X senator? How do we make a deal with McConnell? How do we figure out how to get this person? And because he was such a creature of Congress and had been there for so long and was so well respected, he knew everyone and he knew how to get it done. And there would be no Obamacare without him. There would be no don't ask, don't tell repeal without him. 
you know, there would be a bunch of these things where it looked like we couldn't get the votes and we'd go over there and he'd say, okay, Jimmy, let me call blank and see what I can do. And because he's well-respected. The second thing I always appreciated growing up poor as I did and coming from the wrong side of the tracks um, was that he continually, when we wrestled with these issues, he continually would say, what's in it for the lunch pail guy? What's in it for the average person? What do they get out of this? And that is insanely important because two things happen when you get in the White House. First of all, is every day they give you a problem no one else in government can solve and you got to solve it and quick. And two, you get really in the weeds on all the data and all the kind of arcane Washington. You get inside that bubble really quickly. And it is super important to have a North Star, to have a guide of who you are and what you believe and what you think you're in this for. And, you know, Obama talked about this on the Pod Save America stuff last week. Um, Biden was always the one saying, wait a minute, what about the normal folks? What are they getting here? How does this affect them? And in some of these policy discussions, you know, you need that. And that's who he was over and over and over. And so I think those are the two things I really remarked about him. Right. It's super interesting. So um, personally speaking, um, you know, you've built a big business, you've been on top of the political world, but, you know, this conversation obviously reflects that you are super engaged in this election cycle, <laughs> really on top of it. Um, you didn't have to be. Um, why? It's a great question, because after I ran 2012, I was done in American politics, right? I'd run my dream race for my dream candidate. Um, I, I literally said I will never again kind of work in American politics. Um, and I went on to do international stuff and other things. But um, I remember I was doing the Spanish presidential election when Hillary lost. And the election was like the week before the U.S. election. I flew home to be with Obama on election night. And everyone thought she was going to win, and she didn't. And then I started, you know, doing other races around the world, and you realize the absolute kind of undoing of the political order that Trump was doing and how bipartisanly in these countries I was operating in, all the parties would say to me, how is this possible that the United States of America just elected this guy? And then you started seeing the way he acted, like on the Russian stuff and the impeachment stuff and Obamacare. And, and you know, I remember, you know, saying to myself, I can't in good conscience not get involved. And I wasn't going to go in and work on a campaign because it was time for other people to do that. But it certainly was time to find a way I could be helpful. And I think it's true with everyone, right? Like, you know, it's we all have a responsibility. Democracy is is a very fragile thing. And I'm a big student of history and I read a lot of Roman history. And, you know, in the end, the Romans sacked Rome. No one sacked Rome. They sacked Rome to save it from itself. And that kind of felt like this moment. It kind of felt like Trump was trying to burn down what was good about us. And I'm like you. I was like, okay, I don't really want to do this, but I have to. And so, you know, I waded into the river one last time. Right. So um, just to wrap up, uh, tell us how you're going to spend election night. Uh, I am going to be in Montana. Uh, my first roommate out of college uh, was Steve Bullock. 
um, who will still remind you that I didn't pay rent. He let me live there for free on the on the 1992 Democratic coordinated campaign in Montana, where I was a young legislative campaigner and he was the coordinated campaign director. Uh, and, you know, the future of my state is at risk and I really want Steve Bullock to be a U.S. senator. And so I'm going to stay home and fight for this where I live um, and see if we can, you know, all, all politics is local and, and I'm going to draw a line in the sand where I live. Great. Well, best of luck with that. And uh, thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, David. Thank you for having me. Jim, this has been a great conversation. Thanks so much for joining us today and for all your work on behalf of American Bridge. We look forward to having you on again. For more information on American Bridge, please visit AmericanBridgePAC.org. Check back for more podcasts and information about the upcoming election and how we plan to hold Republicans accountable. Until next time, I'm David Brock. Thanks for listening to The War Room at American Bridge.